All right, so have you ever heard of the crab mentality? Anybody ever heard of that? The crab mentality. Okay, if you're a fisherman or a crabber, you know this mentality. Fishermen know that you don't need to put a top or a cover on the basket of crabs. Why? Because if one crab tries to climb out of the basket, all the other crabs will reach up and pull them back down. Yeah. The church and the state kind of relate like that. They're like crabs in a basket. <laughs> when one of them starts climbing, the other reaches up and pulls them back down. Uh, how should the church and the state relate to each other? There are four common views. The first view is this, the state should control the church. This view is called Erastianism. Uh, This is what happened in Nazi Germany. This is what happened in communist Russia. This is what happens in communist China. This is what happens in many state governments around the world and throughout church history. Some say the church should control the state. Now, there's a different one. This view is called a theocracy. This is what God set up in Israel in the promised land, and this is very, very important for those of you that might tend this way. He did it in Israel in the promised land, but he didn't ordain it outside of Israel in the promised land. In fact, when Israel went into Babylon, he didn't say to set up a theocracy there. He said, submit to the state authorities that are there. So some Christians still work to push laws and to to have a triumphalistic view of the church over the state. Um, I guess you kind of see how I feel about that. Others say there should be a compromise, the state The state should favor the church, and the church should accommodate to the state, each scratching the back of the other, the state giving favors to the church, the church giving this exalted endorsement to the state. That's called Constantinianism. It's named after the Roman emperor, Constantine the Great, who ruled in the early 300s, about 307 to 337. Uh, He became a Christian. And so when he became a Christian, there was a hostile relationship between the state and Christianity. But when he became a Christian, for the first time, Christianity became popular. It was a hit. It was a success. Christianity had great influence because the leader now created a friendly relationship with the state. Hollywood liked the church. All the important people and the movers and shakers in the world had a friendly relationship with the state. Still others say there should be a partnership. The state and church should recognize each other, that each have a God-given, instituted, particular, though different, role and responsibility in this world's realm. And so they should encourage each other to fulfill their roles, even at times work together to encourage each to fulfill its distinct role. This view is called partnership or two-kingdom view. So what is it? (laughs) Which one is it? Or is there another option? Is there a fifth one or a sixth one? Is there a combination of the above? Well, welcome. Welcome to my pain. Welcome to Romans 13. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. I'm going to be reading Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of good conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue who to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would shine on the page. Holy Spirit, would you give clarity to the mind, realness to the heart? Would you capture, captivate us with the wonder, with the truth, uh, with the clarity, uh, with the depth of your riches even in this passage? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Romans 12 through 16 is asking, what is a gospel life? First, Paul gives a snapshot of what a gospel life looks like, a governing template, a summary of what the gospel life looks like. That's found in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. It's a template by which all the rest of 12 through 16 is looked at. It's the governing view of what a gospel life looks like. Then he shows how the gospel transforms your identity, 12.3. Then he shows how it transforms the church's identity, 4-8. through eight. Then he shows how the gospel transforms relationships, 9-21. through 21. And then we're here. Then we're at the state, governing, ruling authorities. Did you see that one coming? I sure didn't see that coming. Did you see in the priorities of what a gospel life looks like, what Christianity looks like, what holiness and obedience looks like, that in that list and you're moving, I saw relationships, I saw identity, I saw the church, I did not see the state coming. Maybe career, maybe vocation, but the state, did you see that one coming? You didn't see that coming, so don't tell me you did. This is so jarring, isn't it? I mean, it's just like, what just happened? We were talking about relationships, and we were, we were into community, and we were really kind of moving along, and then all of a sudden, like a punch in the face, we get hit by the state. Why the political scene here? Why is it even on a gospel life list, particularly so high on the order? Here's something we can, can say at this point. The Christian life, a gospel life, is a real life. It's not spiritual theory. This is really, really important. A gospel life is re-enchanting life. It's re-entering life in a different way. It's not escaping life, and it's not spiritualizing life. A gospel life is an embodied life in this world's realm, not a super saint life in a monastery. So Christianity is as real as it gets, 
And if you were to look at other religions of the world, they're either telling you to abandon the body and abandon the material world and abandon the world in order to find life, or they completely ground themselves in the material and ground themselves in the, the physical and lose the soul in the process. But Christianity says, no, man, Christianity is an embodied life in this world's realm. And what that means is that God is embedded into this life uh, potencies of his glory in creation and in redemption. So that means you and I can serve God as a mechanic or a minister. The minister has no more access to serving God and no more spiritual reality to serving God than the mechanic. The Holy Spirit authored and animates creation and redemption. Potencies of glory are embedded in creation and redemption. The good, the beautiful, and the true in creation and in redemption. And so Christianity is re-enchanting life. So it's going to re-enchant our view of government. That's the point. So what are we going to do with Romans 13? What's the plan? I really don't know. But I do kind of know. This is what I do know. We're not going to do this. If I hear one more application of Romans 13 being so obey the speed limit, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to beat you out of here to all the restaurants by going 90 miles an hour down 35. I've had it with that. Haven't you? I mean, I heard this as a college student. I heard this as a young 20-something. I heard this overseas. I heard that now you guys that like the speed... I'm like, really, that's the application of this incredible passage? Don't speed? Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at how you should view the state, how we should view the state, ruling, governing authorities. Then we're going to look at how we should relate to the state, how we view the state, how we relate to the state. Pretty straightforward. That's how Paul is. Are you ready? Okay. How should we view the state? Look at verse 1. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist that have been instituted by God. This means the state is God's idea, not our idea. This means God invented the state, not us. Think about that. I'm really going to push it here. I'm going to push it and make us uncomfortable. I'm going to offend everybody so that we're all offended. And nobody likes me, but no one can walk away with their view being superior. The state exists because of God, not us. This means whatever form it is, there is no authority, no authority, no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And Paul is not, I mean, what we want him to do is identify a specific divine form of government, don't we? Right there. Okay, tell us what the absolutized biblical state should look like. And he doesn't do it. In fact, he does just the opposite. So this means that kings, czars, and dictators are the state in God's eyes. Ouch. This means that democracies, republics, monarchies, tribal powers, and collectivism, which is socialism, are the state in God's eyes. Are we getting uncomfortable? And so is every kind of combination and anything I missed. In Paul's day, the state was the Roman Empire. At best, the Roman Empire was unchristian. It was irreligious. It was pagan. At worst, it was hostile to the state, hostile to the church, persecuting the church. And it's in this Roman Empire, it's in this context, he says, the state exists because of God, not us. 
The state is instituted by God, not us. This is the way he's saying God designed human society to work. The big question is why, though, isn't it? I mean, that's what I'm asking. That's what you're asking. Why? Why does the state exist? Why is this the way God designed human society to work? We've got to read a little bit, just what we just read, two through four. You ready? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Ouch. Those who resist will incur judgment. Double ouch. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who has authority? In other words, do you not want to be afraid? Do you not want to live like you're afraid of the state? (laughs) He says, then do what's good. And you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Why did God design human society to work this way? The state makes it possible for messy people to live together. That's why. Paul's answer in 2 through 4 is, look, the state makes it possible for messy people like you and me to live together. In other words, the state was given because there's sin. The state was given because the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. The state was given because we're broken. The state was given because we don't work right. Internally, relationally, socially, we're a mess. And so it's in the context of a fallen world that God institutes the state. The Ten Commandments show us what self-interest run amok looks like. I just want to rehash this just a tad. So here's what I want you to think. What if self-interest wasn't checked? That's what we should ask. All right, what if self-interest wasn't checked? What if it wasn't just the state that carried the sword, but let's say it's the wild, wild west and everyone carries the sword? What would that look like? Here's a picture of maybe what it might look like. Run amok, all right? So the Ten Commandments tell us what a human being looks like, what a true human being looks like. So the Ten Commandments would show what inhumanity would look like if they're not kept. Self-interest run amok. Here's what would happen. The loss of the first and second commandment, that would mean that anything and everything becomes a God. Anything and everything becomes our identity, becomes our salvation, becomes our meaning, becomes our happiness, becomes our truth, becomes our security, becomes our obedience, becomes our worship, becomes our sacrifices, becomes our laws. It's a battleground of the gods. The loss of the third commandment means no awe and intimacy with the true God. If there's no awe and intimacy with the true God, that means there's there's spiritual, psychological, relational, social, cultural, material, even technological chaos. Because God is the sun by which all the planets orbit, and if there's no if there's, if there's treating him vainly, meaning no on intimacy with him, it's not a real connection with him, all the planets start spinning out of their orbit into chaos. Third, the loss of the first three commandments means we build our lives around ourselves. In other words, we build our lives around self-interest. We build our lives around the self. So this is what this does. This produces obsessive, addictive, angry, anxious, fearful, 
controlling exhausted people. How do I know this? Because the fourth commandment is law, is lost, which is resting in God. And if there's no rest in God, there are obsessive, compulsive, controlling, manipulating, angry people running around. Building our lives around ourselves produces rebellious people. This is a loss of the fifth commandment. There's a loss of respect and honor for authority and for other people. Uh, Self-interest or building our lives around ourselves produces abusive people. This is a loss of the sixth commandment. So everyone is walking around like a serial killer in their thoughts and sometimes their actions. We murder people. As Jesus would say, there's hate going on. Self-interest produces serial sex outside of marriage, loss of the seventh commandment, adultery. Self-interest produces, I want what you have, the loss of the eighth commandment, stealing. Oh, I like that. I like your respect. I like your honor. I like your status. I like your bank account. I like your furniture. I'll take it, please. Self-interest produces unreality or false prophets. This is the loss of the ninth commandment. What I mean by that is that everyone is spinning a world of unreality because it's lies and falsehoods. Everyone's a stranger to the truth. No one recognizes the truth anymore, and that's why we're called false prophets. We project interpretations of reality. We say, this is what this should look like. This is who I am. This is what's going on in so-and-so's life. And everyone lives in that kind of loss of the ninth commandment. And then the last one, self-interest produces mega desires for anything and everything. This is the loss. This is coveting. Coveting says, I must have this to be okay. So don't you block that, and then we're going back to the sixth commandment. Oh, you get in my way. See how this works? So imagine, imagine if all this went unchecked in a a human society. Unchecked. I know this raises tons of questions, and here's the ticket. Paul doesn't help us one bit with them. So I picked one implication and one objection, and that's what we're going to look at right now. Here's the implication. Are you ready? The state is not the devil, which tends to be the view of conservatives. And the state is not the savior, which tends to be the view of liberals. The state... um, Well, the state is an avenger. Here's the deal. Cautious Christians. We need to be cautious about ideological extreme views about the role of the state and the role of the government. It's not the devil, and it's not the savior. It's the avenger. Verse 4. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. One Roman scholar puts it this way. There is a complete consensus among all Christians. So here's a consensus view. And almost everyone else, that there can be no civil order unless the state punishes wrongdoing. Murder, theft, various forms of lying and fraud, etc., are universally seen as undermining a peaceful, harmonious society. The sword probably means the power to inflict penalties up to and including death in cases of war and capital punishment. That is the fairest way to read Paul's words, for when he previously used the word sword in Romans 8.35, it meant death, and that's its normal meaning, its normal usage in the life of the Greco-Roman world at the time, end quote. So the state is not the devil, and the state is not the savior. It's an avenger, but it's not just an avenger. It's also God's servant for the good. Look at verse 4. Here's a literal translation. For he is a servant of God for you for the good. 
Now, this is amazing. So what does the good mean? And now we're back into controversy again, and Paul doesn't help us out. Does the good mean only good behavior? That would be a conservative view. Or does the good mean general welfare of people, economically, culturally, relationally, societally, which would be the view of those that would favor the, more of the state's involvement in our society, which means more government, which tends to be more of a liberal view. So what is it? <laughs> Paul doesn't tell us. But I go with one, I go with one scholar who puts it this way, and I think he's right on. He says this, perhaps the most natural rendering for the good is this, the state both promotes and rewards the good, which is right behavior and right relationships, and restrains and punishes the evil, which is wrong behavior and wrong relationships. Don't ask me all the implications of that and what all that means, because I really don't know, but it sounds really good. Now for the objection. Are you ready? That's the implication. The implication is the state is not the devil, and the state uh, is not the savior. The state is an avenger. It restrains evil. It restrains evil, right be wrong behavior, wrong relationships, and it promotes the good, right relationships, right behavior, Okay. Now the objection, but the state also produces evil. Revelation says, man, it gives it its own little, like, 666 moniker that the state can act like a beast. Who checks the state? The state checks us as a society, as people, so we can live together. But who checks the state? Oh, man. Now, my heritage and my ancestors were daughters and sons of the American Revolution. <laughs> right? I'm not going there. Um, this is why the Bible sets a limit to our submission to the state. What does Jesus say, remember? Takes the coin of Caesar and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Sets a limit. So Caesar gets taxes, God gets worship, period. So yes to taxes in verse, do you see that in verse six and seven? He lists all, seven, pay to them what's due. And that's the context of civil authorities, taxes, Revenue, uh, respect, honor, uh, participation, full participation in civic life. In other words, we're not to abandon civic life. We're to be involved in civic life because it's creation. It's where God has us. It's the real life. It's the real world, right? So yes to all that, but no to worship or unqualified obedience. No, if God, no, if the state commands us to do stuff that God forbids, no. If the state forbids us to do what God commands, no, no, I will not obey. And we see that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see that in Daniel. We see that all over. Now, they didn't grab the sword to enforce that. What they did is they actually, which is crazy land, respectfully, calmly, fearlessly disobeyed. whatever the cost.
my quick answer to who checks the state in the fallen world, this is a quick answer at about 10 o'clock last night. If you live in a democracy, who checks the state? We the people. If you live in a totalitarian state, other states. What this means is there's caution again, right? God through other states is how totalitarian regimes that turn beast-like 666-like need to be checked. Uh, this means this, caution. This does not mean wars are holy wars. They are not, and they never will be. But it does mean that a war can approximate a just war. It can approximate. I'm not, I can't and I'm not willing to say just war theory, but I am willing to say an approximate just war because we live in a messy world and we live with messy lives and there are messy people and messy regimes on both. But this is how God seems to work. The other thing, so we're not saying holy wars. No such thing as a holy war. No such thing. Uh, it doesn't mean that every state that is overthrown is evil either. And it doesn't mean that every state that's not overthrown is good either. In other words, you just got to be smart. You just got to be wise. You just got to really walk in the realm of two poles of Wrestling with God, wrestling with the community, wrestling with your conscience. How should we relate to the state in which we live? I'm just going to recite it for you. Look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Okay? Every person, so that includes everyone, everyone in the church, everyone outside of the church. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection to the state. Why, though? For the sake of conscience. So first he said be in subjection out of fear. But Paul's after a more positive motivation for you and me. Not just fear that you're going to get a ticket, <laughs> fear that you're going to be restrained in some way, but actually out of a, a good conscience. In other words, this was instituted by God. And treat the state respectfully. Don't demonize it and don't turn it into a savior but out of a good conscience. It's not the demon. It's not the savior. It's an avenger and it's a promoter, a servant for good. Even when you need to disobey. Pay to all. This is all governing authorities. What's owed to them? Taxes, revenue, respect, honor, full participation. Verse 7. And then Jesus, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. So side note, this is what I think is happening here. Paul and Jesus seem to be endorsing the participation view, the two kingdom view with qualifications and lots more complexity, but that seems to be it. In other words, God has ordained and set up the state to have a certain role and functions and responsibilities, the church to have a certain role, functions and responsibilities. The two should recognize that. The two should work together and encourage each other in their roles, period. No mixing of roles. No, like, one without the other. No one controlling the other. No conflation of the other, theocracy, right? So how should we relate to the state? It seems to me that this passage is calling for an intelligent submission. And what we mean by an intelligent submission is this. God invented the state for a fallen world, so he invented the state to check evil and, continual, and to continue the good. 
Give to Caesars what is Caesar's, intelligent submission. That's the role of the state. But also intelligent submission because the state can be evil. The state can try to take God's place. The state can try to command what God forbids and to forbid what God commands. Give to God what is God's, intelligent. And here's the ultimate reason for intelligent submission. Because Jesus ascended. Now, 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 it gets breathtaking. Do you know the word ascension, where we get that from? We get that from the Roman emperors. We get that from the Greek gods. Because when a Roman emperor was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor, it was thought that he entered the pantheon of the gods to rule as a god. And Paul said, okay, I'll take that image. I'll take that image and I'm going to blow it up. When Jesus ascended, Jesus ascended as God. And when he ascended as God, he ended all other gods. He ended them. He dethroned them in your my life. Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, listen, when Jesus ascended, he ascended far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet. So what this means is that Jesus' ascension ends all false thrones in your life. He not only puts them under his feet, he puts them under your feet. So think of all the rules and the powers and the authorities and the control and the dominions in our life. Sin, self-interest, what we just looked at. Death, dethroned, thrown at your feet. The psalmist actually says you get to walk in the blood of your enemies. The rule... The rule of anxiety, the rule of fear has been dethroned, thrown down under your feet. The power of human approval has been dethroned. The power of coercive state power has been dethroned. <laughs> So we're no longer enslaved to them. We no longer have to fear them. We no longer have to live under them. We no longer have to be live in that worldview of reality. We no longer have to bow to what it says. We no longer have to do what it calls us to do. We now, as Christians, have the freedom to serve God in every area of our life. And because the context here is civil authorities, I'm going to end with that. You and I have the freedom now to intelligently submit to the state in a very calm way. And what I mean by calm is this. Because Jesus ascended, he instituted the state, he's in control of the state. You can be calm. 
a calm submission. But also, because Jesus ascended, you can have a careful submission to the state. The state is not a demon, although it can take on that status at times. Beast-like, 666, I'm giving full weight to Revelation. But the state is also not the Savior, so you can have a careful intelligent submission. You're able to weigh that. You're able to think through that. You're able to not demonize it, and you're able to not make it your Savior. You're able, because Jesus ascended, to know that there's only one Savior and one God, and He rules. And then the last thing that you can do in an intelligent submission is you can be very, very courageous. Because Jesus ascended, what that means is the state can command you to do what God forbids, and you can courageously say no. Because Jesus has ascended. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, far above every other rule, authority, power, dominion, and put all of it under his feet. So in view of God's mercies, because isn't that the gospel life? In view of God's mercies, submit. In view of God's mercies, in view of the mercies of the ascension of Jesus, you and I are able to intelligently submit to the state. Amen.